Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brad Wright, the host of today's show. Today we'll be talking to Tanelis Padilla about her new book, Unintended Lessons of Revolution, Student Teachers and Political Radicalism in 20th Century Mexico. Tanelis Padilla is professor of history at MIT. She is a historian of Latin America who focuses on political and agrarian movements in modern Mexico. Her first book, Rural Resistance in the Land of Zapata, the Jaramillista Movement and the Myth of the Pax Priista, 1940-1962, published by Duke University Press in 2008, recounts the history of an agrarian movement that turned to armed struggle during an era of Mexican history previously considered one of social and political stability. She's co-editor and contributor to a 2013 special issue of the Journal of Iberian and Latin American Research that analyzes the implications of recently declassified intelligence documents for Mexico's post-revolutionary historiography. In Mexico, Professor Padilla is a frequent contributor to national newspaper La Jornada and has published an edited volume in Spanish entitled El Campesinado y su Persistencia en la Actualidad Mexicana, from 2013, an interdisciplinary and binational work on the Mexican countryside and its recent past. In the Spanish translation of her first book, Después de Zapata, was published by a call in September 2015. Tana Padilla, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Brad. It's uh, so uh, nice to, to be here and to be able to have this conversation about my book. Thank you. Great to talk with you today. I wonder if we could begin the interview um, with you telling us how you became interested in the research questions that drive this study. I mean, what are the origins of of unintended lessons of revolution? Yeah, definitely. And I guess, um, so like all uh, book projects. Um, sometimes there are, you know, multiple um, uh, reasons that we decide to choose them, or in this case, that I feel like they choose us. And this topic, in some ways, I think, chose me. I guess, I mean, uh, primarily the the intellectual question um, or curiosity that first led me to explore it comes from the research I did on my first book, which, as you already mentioned, right, was on an agrarian movement um, during the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. And this is a book I started researching in um, 1999. 
um, this when I first did my field research on it. And um, as I was doing, you know, interviews or looking at the documents, I kept running across in this campesino movement, uh, rural teachers, you know, maestros rurales. And, you know, uh, both in the, you know, the specific topic, but also as I was thinking about or reading broadly about uh, uh, peasant movements in Mexico in the 20th century, I saw that, you know, significant uh, guerrilla leaders or prominent guerrilla leaders like Lucio Cabañas, uh, Genaro Vázquez, um, Arturo Gamis, Pablo Gómez, were, you know, these were figures that in the 1960s and 70s took up armed struggle, were, they were themselves rural teachers. And so that struck me as a little bit odd because just coming out of graduate school, you know, just finishing up my oral exams, one of the things that I had uh, studied about rural teachers were much more about them as agents of state consolidation, of the revolutionary state consolidation, you know, uh, going off to communities to um, establish allegiances to uh, these uh, between these communities, members of these communities and the new state, right? A, a sort of way of forjar patria, or at the very least of being mediators, as, you know, Mary Kay Vaughn writes um, about, about teachers. So I was wondering, why do I keep encountering them as leaders uh, of sometimes very militant movement against the state uh, on whose behalf they were supposed to act? So that's sort of the question that for a long time, uh, nagged at me. And, you know, there's several uh, answers to that and reasons that I'll explore in the book. But one of the uh, reasons I I initially found or probably had to do with the time period uh, for which teachers or the education system had been studied at that point and what was not examined. So until uh, recently, maybe, you know, kind of my generation of graduate students slash, uh, you know, when we published our, our, our first book, the, those of mine in my generation in the, you know, early 2000s or first decade of 2000s, uh, most of the historiography on 20th century Mexico was devoted to the revolution and to state consolidation, um, whereas the 1940s and beyond remained largely unexplored. So as we'll talk about a little bit later, I think that's you know, part of the answer as to uh, why teachers played what I thought was a, a different role. But in terms of going back to just real uh, quickly, the, the question that... Um, you know, kind of led me to this book. That that was the main kind of what you would call intellectual or scholarly uh, initial question. Um, and then, of course, there's some aspects, you know, kind of uh, personal and even uh, political nature of my political commitment. Personally, I myself uh, spent my childhood in rural Mexico. So uh, the world of rural teachers and the, the world of uh, rural students was not necessarily unfamiliar to me. So increasingly, as I began doing the research on, on this book, I, I found myself, you know, kind of going back to some of the things that as a kid I noticed in, in rural Mexico, but, you know, didn't understand, say, the way I do now as a scholar. And, and finally, uh, politically, um, I have always uh, uh, in some way tried to participate in both, um, you know, and in activist uh, movements in some way or contribute to uh, the the discourse, the dialogue, the the struggle of of those who seek, you know, in in, in countless ways to to fight for uh, for justice. And 
the fact that I kept noticing uh, students, rural normalistas, out protesting, um, again, in, um, at a time when uh, socialism was considered uh, over, when Marxist analysis was considered over, you know, because of the fall of the Berlin Wall, and the fact that these students kept invoking Marx and Lenin and prominently held the, you know, hammer and sickle, that, that was intriguing, uh, to say the least, and I wanted to, to find out more about that. So that's kind of, you know, the, the long or multifaceted uh, uh, question, uh, reasons how I, you know, kind of began to get immersed in, in the topic. Thank you so much for that, Tanalise. And um, I think I would uh, kind of build on what you were just saying about uh, recent political developments and, and commitments and things. And in the course of your research uh, and, and writing, I think in 2014, there was an important um, episode in this, in this ongoing history of rural normalistas. Um, in September 2016, students from the teacher training college in uh, Yotzinapa in the state of Guerrero um, and the state's uh, repression of them and how 43 students uh, had gone missing. Um, and there's still, their parents still have a movement to, to find them, and it's gotten significant international support. And you begin the book talking about Ayotzinapa and the legacy of revolution. So I wonder if you might start there um, in terms of getting into to the body of this of this book. Yeah, yes, of course. And I you know, Ayotzinapa was an incredibly significant moment, right? That 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 moment you described in September 2014 when students had taken over a bus or several buses, a practice that's common um in in, you know, that's been common among normalistas and other types of students, you know, in decades past. And they had done this to go uh, in preparation to go to the demonstration of October 2nd, the commemoration of the 1968 Latelolco massacre. And yeah, as they were exiting the town of Iguala with the uh, buses they had procured for students, not just students at Ayotzinapa to attend, but from all the students of the rural normales to be able to attend, they were stopped by armed gunmen and state and municipal police um, very close to um, a military base. And they were shot at. Three normalistas uh, were killed. One was brutally tortured um, and found dead with his uh, face uh, torn off. Three other civilians were killed. Many were injured. And as you mentioned, 43 students were taken and have not been uh, heard of uh, since. And so this was yeah in 2014. By then I had start been started research and even writing my my uh, my this this book you know for quite quite a few years, and um, yet in Mexico for the most part rural normales were not much known about or discussed. They weren't in part of public consciousness at all. Here and there, you'd have, you know, uh, demonstrations by these students um, and, you know, would come out on the press and then things would calm down and people would not talk about it anymore. And so these, these, these schools were primarily thought about as kind of, you know, some relics of the past um, with, you know, uppity students, uppity poor students, um, to the extent that they were even thought about. 
And yet this episode, um, you know, was significant in that um, it brought, uh, uh, because the government uh, tried to dismiss it first as a local effort and then just as, you know, kind of a drug cart uh, students being uh, either involved in drug cartels, they tried to um, imply, you know, and thus being uh, attacked because of that, or trying to say that they were at, at best at, you know, in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that's what they get for um uh, you know, for being such troublemakers. So that's how the the government then tried to dismiss it, the administration of Enrique Peña Nieto. Um, but the population didn't accept it, and a massive uh, demonstrations, you know, happened throughout Mexico and then internationally. And significantly, in terms of the, the significance of this moment, was uh, you know, aside from the fact that it brought the history or the, you know, the visibility of these schools into public light. It also, um, there was a question by some about why this incident of violence against civilians uh, um, elicited such demonstrations when there had already been so many attacks on civilians. Um, and, you know, by then, uh, the number's much higher th- now, but by then there were already 100,000 victims of of the drug war declared in 2006 um, and about 25,000 disappeared. So the question was, why why this and not other uh, uh, such violence elicited this massive demonstration? And one of the things, you know, and here a little bit coming back to my study that I think helps explain it, it's not the only thing, but one of the things that helps explain why this case drew so much attention, I think, has to do precisely with the radical tradition of these students and the fact that as soon as this happened they mobilized um they i mean they they mobilized other students from other schools they mobilized their parents they mobilized the population in general to to um decry this instance of state um uh violence and they they succeeded in touching a nerve by a population that was really you know fed up by such long term violence not to mention not to mention corruption and and state abuse you know that that we can we talk about more so i think th- those those that those two levels are really significant for um uh the understanding of of rural normalistas um and their tradition of political mobilization your book moves primarily chronologically um through three major periods um, in this history of student teachers and the institution of rural normalis. Um, let's start with the first, if you would, Tanalise, in the period of what you call revolutionary state consolidation during the 20s and 30s. Um, and I just wanted to read to begin with a quote from page two of the book. Um, and maybe we can highlight especially the period under President Lazaro Cárdenas, but here you say, the institutions that would train these educators acquired many of their defining characteristics during the presidency of Lazaro Cárdenas, 1934 to 1940, whose numerous progressive reforms included socialist education. Although socialist education was short-lived as official policy and never clearly defined by its state architects, at Rural Normalis, its meaning was simple and enduring, justice. Education for the poor, a student voice in institutional practices, and class consciousness constituted defining elements of normalista culture reproduced in subsequent decades thanks to student collective action. 
So if you could just maybe talk a little about that period of the 20s and 30s as the institution got established. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, um, and you know, this period is, you know, <laughs> as the, the quote indicates there, I mean, especially uh, the 1930s, just absolutely fundamental in understanding, I guess, the, the thread that runs through my, my whole book or the larger question that I try to answer is, well, why and how did these schools uh, developed this tradition of political radicalism. So the origin uh, the, it lies, or the the roots of this lie in the 1920s and 30s. And the 1920s, you know, in terms of the process of state consolidation, which, as as you know, kind of we all know, is a, it was both a uh, top down and a bottom up um, uh, process. But in terms of the um, for the purposes of the of this book, the, the bottom-up process that involved the um, agrarian longings or demands implicit in the revolution, even though the, you know, the more radical tradition of the revolution that led by Zapata and Villa was, you know, ostensibly defeated, it still had to be incorporated into this, this project of national consolidation. So these schools, the, the, the education that um, students acquired at these schools was not only as you know when i first started this project i thought to to become agents of state consolidation yes the state uh, wanted and needed that right but it also meant understanding principles of justice which uh um uh, uh gave legitimacy to that state to those uh to to the poor and so that's kind of, you know, in the 1920s. And in the 1930s, this really gets codified by uh, when you have this kind of effervescence of the much more or the more radical principles in the Constitution actually being applied, among them socialist education. And, you know, socialist education, aside from, you know, what it may have meant and as i said you know in the book it's 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 vague it, it, to some it, it did indeed mean the eventual you know kind of appropriation of the means of production by the proletariat to others it just meant you know anti-clerical uh, education but the fact that it was a structuring uh, principle um as i said really uh allowed students to explore it and use it um, as a, a stand-in uh, uh, for justice. And, and this, um, this dynamic played out in several ways. And I'll, uh, you know, I'll try to be brief here, but one of those ways was just the fact that it meant that the teacher needed to be a, co a community activist um, as well. And by that community leader um, uh, and helping the populations they instructed uh, demand their rights, right? Demand their agrarian rights, demand union rights, demand uh, cooperatives. So <clears throat> right from the outset, the students at the Normales were going to be trained to be leaders so that they could help implement these principles of justice. <coughs> Excuse me. But also this meant that how do you train them to be leaders? Well, you give them a say in the institutions uh, which they're students so that they can start uh, 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 you know, exercising their voice or as some school administrators believed, you know, we have to make these meek, passive campesinos be leaders, you know? Um, and so you can tell sort of the, uh, the judgment that's, that's there, but that meant that they began this active participation 
since the other schools. And so this was also a part of the legacy of socialist education. And finally, just socialist education, again, even if it just meant uh, understanding the history of the Mexican Revolution or analyzing systems of exploitation or understanding class, went a long way in uh, denaturalizing poverty and beginning to provide the tools which could be you know, honed either through more analysis or through struggle itself um, to continue to uh, uh, participate uh, when, you know, when the time was ripe or when opportunity necessitated, necessitated it. Um, and, and finally, I, um, I just thought of one other thing that's important. The SEP itself, the Ministry of Public Education, had several important Marxists among its teachers, among its intellectuals, at one point among the Minister of Education, uh, you know, himself in, in, the, in the 30s. Um, and so it took a while to kind of uh, get rid of all of them <laughs> later on. So that meant that you actually had an educational institution that had a broad, often uh, radical ideological uh, spectrum. And was there a shift, if we're talking about, if we're thinking about a period that's the 1920s and the 1930s, with the institution established in the wake of the revolution uh, in the 20s, uh-huh. uh, was there a shift under Cardenas after, between 34 and 40? I mean, we know there was after Cardenas in terms of the state's policy policies towards these students and institutions, but were, were there a couple of changes, uh, you know, in the late 20s, say, or 30s that we should know about? Yeah, yes, definitely. And I'm glad uh, uh, you asked that question because the 20s and 30s are very different uh, uh, periods, even if there isn't a clear uh, a divide or even if that divide may or may not be, you know, 1934 when Cardenas took office. I guess in broad terms, the, the most important uh, way of understanding the shift would be, again, in general terms, that I think the 1920s and especially under presidents like uh, Calles emphasized uh, uh, much more principles of, uh, you you know, one could say uh, modernity or modernization of agriculture, uh, technification of agriculture. So Gallas even saw kind of individual small farmers as the kind of the model to go by. And some of these schools in the 1920s were kind of more agricultural schools under the principle that as long as you teach um, uh, the future teachers how to produce, you know, in the modern forms of production or more efficient forms of production, that'll improve the campesino uh, condition. Whereas under under Cardenas and under socialist uh, education, those principles get extended or linked to social questions or social conditions themselves. Um, that tendency that I mentioned already about, uh, about uh, teachers being community leaders, that was much more emphasized in the 30s than in the 1920s. It was there in the 1920s, but it was, uh, it, it, it was um, emphasized a lot more in, in the 30s. Also, um, the then uh, the 1930s is when these stu- schools were made explicitly for the sons and daughters of campesinos of, of rural uh, poor 
people. Before in the 1920s, there, there wasn't, uh, you know, kind of explicit requirements about who could go to these schools. And in the 1930s, uh, they started uh, asking for documentation and specifically uh, thinking of these schools as they are, they are for the sons and daughters of the rural poor. Uh, there was an exception that um, uh, uh, children of rural teachers themselves, not necessarily economically privileged, right? But the, 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 the children of rural teachers could also attend these schools. Anyway, so, so part of the thinking was, well, campesinos will be the ones, uh, the most committed teachers. But the other part of the, the thinking was, again, and we come back to this principle of, of justice, right? Um, the revolution necessitated a redistribution uh, of wealth. And, you know, you can think of redistribution of wealth in the kind of straightforward way, the way Cardenas expropriated haciendas and divided the land and gave it to campesinos. Or you can also think about it about through the establishment of institutions and the granting these institutions resources for the education uh, or social mobility of, of the poor. And these were um, were one such institutions, um, and and that transformation happened during the 30s. And one more thing that was important during the 30s, which I'm sure we'll get into later, but I'll just mention it now, was that was the the creation of the Federación de Estudiantes Campesinos Socialistas de México, the FECSM, its acronym in Spanish, um, and readers probably understand, but it was the Federation of Socialist Campesinos Students of Mexico, which was an organization that represented all of the rural normales um, in Mexico, and that was created in 1935, and that has... um, that has important implications regarding socialist educations and that time period, which we can talk about, um, you know, at some point. Yes. And w- what about, Tanalise, the communities where uh, rural normalists were set up and established? And as the book lays out, and, and it's kind of dizzying <laughs> how much this changed, but um, initially at least... Uh, where were some of the schools set up and why the particular communities? And I think that that feeds into this part about uh, teachers as community leaders, because they, the idea was they were particularly needed in these zones of the country, right? Right, yeah. And, um, and, and to be honest, there, there is not a simple answer to this, um, partly because um, it was so unstable. And so the, the short answer was there was an attempt to establish these schools in rural areas. That wasn't always successful towards the beginning because it had to do with a confluence of factors. Where can you get some land to set the school up, right? Where do you have uh, the necessary teachers to uh, set the, the teachers of the rural, you know, who would instruct the future teachers uh, to come together? So in in the 20s and even in the 30s, I would venture to say it was, it probably was, uh, haphazard is probably not the correct word, but less deliberate than you might think and often had to do with local initiatives um, as much and maybe even more than it had to do with federal, uh, with with the uh, central government's initiative. So, I mean, if we even take the, the example of um, Ayotzinapa, right, that um, the, the, there was a, um, 
in, in Hacienda, a former um, landed estate that could be expropriated, in some cases donated and sometimes bought. There was a, a, a the first director, Raul Isidro Burgos, who was really um, uh, committed to the, to the idea of rural education and even donated some of his own kind of resources to help the school going. There were community members there who wanted um, a, a school. Um, so it has to do with those types of local dynamics in places like Michoacán, both a hotbed of, you know, Cardenismo, that's Cardenas' home state, but also of Cristero radicalism, <laughs> right, or, you know, right-wing uh, anti-teacher sentiment. Schools moved around um, or, you know, had to close down sometimes because of, of that. So so I guess, uh, again, especially in the first two decades, uh, schools changed uh, location and were quite uh, uh, precarious um, and, you know, kind of didn't get kind of solidly on the ground, maybe even uh, until the 40s or 1950s, um, ironically, although some of the kind of... Um, more established ones like Ayotzinapa um, can trace their their specific kind of sites to the 1920s. And then um, after the Cardenas uh, presidency, um, beginning in 1940, um, you note in the book that Mexico's education spending since 1940, quote, operated under a palliative rather than transformative logic. Um, and then we see that at each turn uh, throughout this history, um, while uh, students and others are, are demanding uh, a structural take on things. Uh, there's that uh, insistence on the, on the palliative approach by the by the state, as you mentioned. Could you yeah. could you start there in, in talking about uh, the 40s through the 60s period? I know there's a lot going on there. But. Yeah, there, there is a lot. And so I'll try to, you know, kind of be uh, either brief or, 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 or and or general. Um, sure. So as, uh, uh, again, the 1940s after uh, Cardenas leaves office marks a transition, although as, you know, scholars of Mexico know, it doesn't, you know, begin exactly on December 1st, 1940, right? Uh, Cardenas' own project begins to... Um, uh, face some contradictions towards the end of his own presidency, but the the significance for this project uh, or um, or for the rural normales is that um, with uh, with the beginning of the Avila Camacho um, administration, the the you know the privileging of the countryside as the site for uh, redistributive uh, wealth uh, or for for structural transformation rather uh really ends and the focus begins to be much more on on the cities um and also there is no longer you know kind of this sense of of redistribution in the sense that you know those who have uh a lot of money have some of it you know taken away in the sense of in in the form of expropriation of wealth or nationalization of wealth um but but Mexico um, as as a country begins uh, an enormous level of economic growth, right? What we know of as as the Mexican miracle, and uh, much of this growth actually comes um, at the expense of the countryside, right? With uh, prices for uh, products that campesinos sell low, or because of there's major um, uh, subsidies 
for large um, uh, uh, agricultural uh, projects, and many of them uh, begin to uh, uh, have the logic be to sell in, you know, uh, winter vegetables or fruits. But anyway, what this means for the countryside is the the ejido, like the rural normales, begin to have less um, uh, attention or sympathy and start to flounder in in many ways. Um, But it doesn't mean that Mexico doesn't spend a lot of money on education. Um, It does. It continues to build schools and, you know, especially, you know, a little later on in the in the 50s and 60s and continues to build infrastructure for education again in the cities Um, and to continue to offer jobs to to teachers. Um, However, the fact that major infrastructural projects and attention to the countryside is not happening means that there is a large scale um, uh, migration to the cities and as we all know also also to the United States. So what I you know what I discuss here in terms of the struggle that develops between rural normalistas and the state is their constant sort of demand for more resources, even more schools, um, while the government is spending some uh, uh, public resources on education, but not necessarily on the countryside or not necessarily engaging in a project of kind of real social development that might either prevent the migration to the cities um, or that could provide uh, the countryside with solid public infrastructure beyond, you know, kind of one classroom uh, schools. Also, you know, we could think of hospitals, roads, all that type of public infrastructure for a more equitable uh, distribution um, of wealth. Sure. And um, into the later 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, we're into the Cold War context, and this is particularly important uh, for the normalistas context, context and the way that people in Mexico kind of on different sides um, discussed education and engaged with it. Um, <clears throat> could you talk a little bit about maybe uh, from chapter five, you know, you sort of zero in on the, the northern state of Chihuahua mm-hmm. uh, in the late 50s and early 60s and discuss some of the the key figures in uh, Normales uh, lore, Pablo Gomez, Arturo Gamis. Uh, but could you just give us a little um, state level or localized texture from from this chapter five on Chihuahua? Sure, of course. And this, you know, kind of um, uh, one of the things that begins to happen and, and that is, I think, key to this debate about kind of just spending on education as a palliative measure versus a fundamental redistribution of wealth is uh, the Cuban revolution, right? So that happens in 1959. And as it is in other parts of Latin America and to students, you know, kind of worldwide, it's a huge um, sort of inspiration to... um, to normalistas, and this gets manifested um, in, uh, in in the state of Chihuahua among uh, local activists. So um, you know Arturo Gamis and, and Pablo Gomez, who themselves uh, were normalistas, and that they trained at a normal, but it was actually not a, a rural normal, 
but Gomez taught at a rural normal in Chihuahua and, and Pablo Gamis um, mobilized among a lot of their students and was a rural school teacher. And these figures and this time period, and I guess the case of Chihuahua that I discuss um, uh, in chapter five is significant for several reasons. First, it represents a bit of a transition in ideology between the kind of Cardenista model to which students uh, constantly appeal to, like, you know, kind of we need to return to that or we need to base projects on that type of an ideology in a teacher's community leader, to more of a kind of what you would think of a, a more modern or new left type of uh, socialism, right? Where you have uh, the example of the Cuban revolution and sort of a, a push to, um, uh, uh, to sort of think that that a full-flung socialist revolution uh, might might be possible and that you take a much more kind of uh, um, a anti-imperialist overtly anti-imperialist um, uh, rhetoric right so you begin to see this this shift and it's not necessarily abandoning cardenismo but it's incorporating um these principles of uh, of anti-imperialism and you know kind of 1960s socialism, if you will, or or as I put it in the book, combination of old and new left uh, principles. The other thing that's really striking about the case of Chihuahua in the early 1960s is that this is when you have the clearest example of rural normalistas participating in land takeovers and campesino land takeovers. So these are students who often, you know, mobilized for the, you know, basics of their institutions. But during these, this time period in the 60s, and especially in Chihuahua, you see them, you know, participating in sit-ins and takeovers with the campesino population who was still in desperate need of land um, and or many of the land they had acquired had been reversed, um, that process because of the accumulation or kind of uh, predominance of latifundios, large land extensions um, in Chihuahua. So you would see this clear alliance between the two groups, one that you know, kind of eventually ends up in a attempted armed uprising or attack on the military barracks in Madera with the participation of, you know, or leadership of Gamis and, and Gomez with the participation of some uh, graduates of the rural normales, right? And then with the kind of uh, commemoration by rural normalistas of, of this act. So that's another thing that you see um, in this episode and during this time period. And finally, um, uh, one of the things you see here is this, um, you know, 1968 is often taken as, uh, uh, you know, a, a watershed or if nothing else, the attention that the student movement in Mexico City received, partly because of the repression with which it was ended in, in the Tlatelolco massacre. But if you look at episodes like Chihuahua and the participation of rural normalistas, you see that student activism was a phenomenon, not just outside urban centers, outside Mexico City, but actually a rural um, uh, phenomenon as well, which we don't tend to think of of uh, student movements as in the countryside. And you see it's a very interesting combination of a campesino identity, you know, with all the significance that implies because of the Mexican Revolution and a student identity, which is so key to the kind of zeitgeist of, you know, of the 1960s in terms of student uh, participation and leftist movement. 
I think there's also a, another perception of, of normalistas, maybe by some of us that uh, that we see uh, kind of mostly uh, men or or uh, boys in the public protests. But could you talk a little about um, the uh, gender in this study, and especially the place of uh, women's normalis when they started to have those. Yeah. And in addition, Tanalise, um, you make some important points about indigenous identity and some of the uh, struggles there with many normalistas from indigenous communities. Uh, if you could touch on those couple of things. Sure. Yeah. So it, it's interesting because yeah, the, 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 the male teacher as a, as a kind of political or, or as a leadership has, was very much iconic, both in terms of shortly after the revolution, who the state thought of, um, even though teacher, the teaching profession has historically been one accessible to women, right? And then today, I think even in the images you see today of normalista protests, you often see, you know, uh, uh, young men uh, protesting uh, to the extent that, that, these protests have come from schools like Ayotzinapa and, uh, say, Michoacán, Tiripetio. Uh, the schools are divided by gender, um, or most of them are. Um, and Ayotzinapa is a male school. So that's one of the reasons, uh, you know, since it's so prominent that, that you see um, uh, male students, right? But, but certainly... Uh, uh, the schools were so important uh, for for female uh, students as, as well for all sorts of reasons. First of all, you know, women were just as involved uh, politically or uh, in these mobilizations as as men were. But as as is often the case, either there was a gender division of labor in that women were you know kind of behind the scenes, uh, sometimes asked to you know make sure that you know when cafeteria services were suspended, make sure that they could. Uh, keep providing food, you know, and that kind of traditional division of labor, or uh, the leadership roles, or the you know people who spoke were were often uh, men. Nonetheless, um, the when you speak to 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 women uh, who went to these schools or who and who participated in these movements, you see how important. Uh, they were in a form of uh, of self empower empowerment, and this could occur for for many reasons. You know, maybe the the, the most obvious would be kind of access to a profession, right? You went to, to to these schools, and then you would be able to be a teacher, and then have some form of independence um, by having your own uh, profession. But the other, and many of them actually say more than that, was the kind of uh, experience of political mobilization, even if they did not continue to be activists after, which some did, um, um, and, and um, they, they say, well, you know, when you're there and, you know, you go take over, uh, you know, land takeover in the middle of the night, or you're supposed to defy uh, school authorities, or you confront the police, that gives you a lot of courage. And that gives you a lot of, you know, kind of a, a, a sense of being able to be assertive and to be able to find your voice and to not accept, you know, kind of being relegated to kind of second uh, class. So, so a lot of them cite that as a as a form um, of empowerment and a testament to how um, uh, 
you know, how much women actually participated. Again, if we come back to the, the chapter on Chihuahua is that, you know, kind of the, the governor and all of those were maligning uh, women and of course, in gendered uh, forms, like what are they doing sleeping out there, you know, with campesinos implying, you know, that they were somehow doing a disservice to, to their honor. And, you know, then um, leftist campesino organizations would come out to defend them in paternalistic terms, you know, um, saying, oh, we respect them, you know, but but uh, women themselves were really um, overall um, empowered uh, by their um, uh, uh, access to these schools and by the political uh, mobilizations at these schools. And something similar, though distinct, happens with indigenous uh, students. Um, again, if you come back to some of the principal tropes of the revolution or rhetoric, it's the campesino identity, right? And even the mestizo identity as opposed to indigenous, although there is a tribute to uh, Mexico's indigenous heritage. Um, but um, so... If you think about the, the the student federation that I mentioned, that's campesino and socialista, they claim the campesino identity, right? And if you look at much of their their rhetoric, it's um, it's very much in this tradition, but especially in schools that are in predominantly indigenous areas like the rural normales um, in Oaxaca and in Chiapas, and even to a certain extent Guerrero or Ayotzinapa. There is a there is a predominance of indigenous uh, students, and there um, the the identity is much more fluid. Where you have a process, and it also depends on time period. You know, during actually most of the twentieth century, where access to school meant access to learning Spanish, meant learning the you know dominant language and being able to go back to communities armed with the language of the government to be able to defend communities who couldn't because they didn't speak the language. You know, I'm simplifying a bit, but that type of rhetoric. But especially towards the end of the 20th century, and, you know, here I think the Zapatista movement in Chiapas was invaluable in this, there is much more of a claim to indigenous identity. And even today, uh, much more of an emphasis at these schools, again, especially in indigenous areas, that the curriculum should include uh, more of a consciousness to what it would mean to teach in indigenous communities, not just campesinos assumed to be Spanish speakers or that they should be Spanish speakers. Thank you for that. Um, moving on just a little bit to um, kind of... 1968 and beyond, since we we often, uh, those of us who study late 20th century Mexico, uh, <clears throat> that's such a key moment for us. Yeah. Um, and, and we know that it was for normalistas also. Uh -huh. um, but what about 1969 <laughs> in terms of the reform handed down by the SEP? Yeah. And how that affected uh, rural normalis going forward. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, 69 is a, a, a date that normalistas and, you know, almost everyone else who talks about normales rurales will bring up uh, over and over and for good reason, right? I mean, in one way, it, it, it connects them to, to, 60, to 1968 in the sense that um, rural normalistas were, you know, active before, um, as we already mentioned in case of Chihuahua, but there are other examples, but also in the movement of 1968 itself, right? So in this nationally recognized student movement. 
But also this reform that happens in 1969 uh, under the Azordas is that of the 29 rural normales that existed then, uh, 14 of them are turned into what are called technical agricultural schools. And so you only have 15 normales left. And in those normales, those 15, which used to include both junior high, with previously included junior high and high school, uh, so a total of six years and sometimes even a couple of preliminary years for those who hadn't finished elementary school, those ostensibly six years are cut to three years in that now you need to enter a normal after you have finished junior high school. So it's it's a cut in the number of institutions, but significantly from the point of view of the student organizations and from the point of view of politicizing the student body, it's a cut in the number of years you have to uh, politicize and organize uh, students. And students throughout the rural normales resisted this change. They knew it was coming when it was announced. They occupied schools. They traveled to each other's schools. They tried to do roadblocks, all that. And they were fought tooth and nail in some cases, you know, by the army occupations. In other cases, um, the schools were just kind of not opened until, you know, the, the students abandoned them. And ultimately, they were unable to reverse this um the closure of, of half of their schools. So rural normalistas often cite this as a retaliation for 68. So again, connecting themselves to this broad social movement, but also saying like, you know, we would have been able to continue that movement, the, the student movement that was ended, you know, in other circumstances, but Adias uh, uh, uh you know, and, and the Ministry of Public Education uh, eliminated half of our schools so that we, we wouldn't continue. So that's that's sort of seen as a, a, a sort of a huge uh, watershed in a, and a form of, you know, kind of po- political repression under the guise of an educational uh, reform. And then during the 1970s, uh, there was a uh, a number of, in rural and urban areas, uh, guerrilla movements across Mexico, armed revolutionary movements. And could you talk a little about, the book goes into it, and it's really interesting about uh, the movements involving Lucio Cabanas, former leader of the FECSIM, um, and just generally the connection between normales or some normalistas and uh, armed movements of the 70s. Yeah, yeah. And and so and here it's where, you know, kind of almost talking about, you know, kind of the the 60s or 68 or 69 is one period and and the 70s are another and and again in which, you know, historians we historians of modern Mexico have often, you know, kind of looked at 68 68 as the end either of a miracle or of a particular type of protest or um, or trying to establish the continuities between the protests, you know, before and after. But then the 1970s as a period of kind of crisis, you know, an economic model, and then a type of protest that is much more radical um, because of 68, right? So um, 68 to many is uh, uh, a proof to many is a, a proof that, you know, um, uh, legal means are not going to get you anywhere. So clandestine struggle becomes much more uh, in vogue. And 
And so you have, you know, one of the most uh, uh, famous uh, uh, guerrilla groups here is that led by uh, Lucio Cabañas, you know, and, you know, uh, separately, but in the same state, uh, Genaro Vasquez, who himself was also a rural teacher from Guerrero, though did not study at Ayotzinapa, but is often claimed by Ayotzinapa students as one of theirs. And in the murals that you see at Ayotzinapa, you see Lucio Cabañas, but also Genaro Vasquez. But but uh, two things about this, I, partly because leaders like um, um, Lucio Cabañas, you know, kind of were, were, were not only graduates of Rural Normales, but also head of, of the Student Federation, the FECSM, there begins to be an association between uh, guerrilla movements and, uh, and Rural Normales, right? Um, and, you know, one of the many often disparaging terms that's still used to talk about rural normales among dominant or mainstream society is that, you know, they're uh, needles, guerrilleros, uh, or communist uh, seedbeds or guerrilla seedbeds. Um, and to a certain extent, it's hard. I have not seen data. Maybe at some point we'll have this, you know, how, what proportion of the of armed guerrilla struggles in terms of students, what proportion came from rural normales and what came from others? I don't know that, that we have that. So I can't say uh, with certainty <clears throat> that more came, you know, I'm not even sure if that's, that's the case, right? But the association is there and certainly rural normales had the conditions to to be able to um, uh, uh, participate in guerrilla movements, partly because they were um, uh, in remote areas, partly because students there had the independence from their parents um, because they lived in dorms, right? And partly because they came from this kind of radical tradition, continued to study um, and emphasize political formation as you know, not as part of the curriculum, but students themselves, it would be impossible for you to study at a rural normal and not be exposed to Marxism. Um, so, you know, if you were receptive, um, they, that, they, that could provide a, an entree um, in, into it. And certainly, you know, with, with most normalistas I talked to, especially those who studied in the 60s and especially 70s, you had you know, I talked to either people who had been part of the guerrilla, who knew someone close who had been part of the guerrilla, or who themselves, you know, helped out in some way uh, with with the guerrilla. And here, the way 68 um, is cited by many as an example of students uh, or of uh, legal channels of participation being closed, 69 among normalistas is, is cited as uh, like, look, you know, they're closing our schools down. You know, that's another instance of, of repression and as a kind of logic uh, for, for armed struggle. So part of that, uh, for some students who were, uh, did participate or showed solidarity, it was a matter of how political consciousness had developed over time. And that's one of the themes of your book, political consciousness and its development. And I was wondering, you know, as a historian, how do you sort of get a handle on that? What kinds of sources did you turn to in this book? You mentioned talking with normalistas and um, I think there's 50 plus interviews that you used here. And what kinds of uh, in addition to oral histories, what kinds of 
sources did you use to get at political consciousness? Yeah, thanks. It's first I'll say that it almost it's, it's a hard thing to get at, right? Because it's it's not always tangible. Um, it's something that's that's changes that you know in in one person's life uh, can change, and it's also something that um, you know emerges among uh, in, in in context of broader movements. Not necessarily you kind of just. Um, you know, you have it and then you have it and then it never goes away type of thing, right? But yeah, so aside from uh, oral histories, which are kind of probably the primary primary, um, vehicle to get at consciousness more than anything because you get students or former students reflecting and the contradictions that are involved in memory and in consciousness come out there. And, you know, for a historian, there's a lot of sort of meat there to to analyze but i mean ironically the the uh the documents of the state are also very useful in getting at consciousness because so you have um the the intelligence sources in mexico um as we now know since the archives were declassified spied on everyone and everything we're also you know spying on the rural normales sometimes sending daily reports uh probably had in you know people there infiltrated or people who they paid to to give information and just there if you can call it analysis and sometimes it's analysis sometimes it's just kind of descriptive reporting you know they constantly are reporting on the types of actions or dynamics taking place uh, among the students. And so that's a way to kind of observe, um, you know, kind of um, the the manifestations of consciousness. If, if oral history is a way to get people to, to reflect or to talk about what they did or what they thought they were doing, these reports are, are, are a kind of descriptive sort of uh, observation on what they they did right you also have uh reports of um um the meetings the debates they held and then the student proclamations themselves what their demands are how they're framing these demands you know uh proclamations from the student organization you know how they write them uh um and what um terms or frameworks they justify and on on that they justify them under, I think, gives an interesting perspective on on uh, what how they are thinking about their struggle uh, uh, for for justice. Um, so I think I think those uh, were some of the main uh, sources to get at consciousness. You know, I used other sources such as you know um, students, uh, especially for the earlier periods, what they what they wrote in their assignments or you know kind of final term papers and the way it's it's always interesting to see how they digested um, the pedagogy or the instructions they had from uh, you know from uh, their teachers. So so I think those were were some of the main ways to think about and to talk about uh, consciousness. And then of course to just look at the reports of their actions, right? Their strikes, their when they joined campesino or worker um, organizations, when they joined student protest, um, are, are another way. Thanks so much, Tanalise. I think maybe to kind of conclude our time together, mm-hmm. um, I wonder if we might talk about uh, developments in normalismo, uh, in rural normales, among uh, student-teacher activism there. Since 
uh, roughly 2000, you know, and then uh, maybe particularly thinking about um, how things have developed under the Lopez Obrador administration in the last couple of years, um, which uh, at least coming into office represented a, a shift politically. Yeah. Um, could you talk a little about more recent uh, context in light of what you've laid out here? Sure, definitely. So I think you could almost have like three different dynamics uh, affecting or as a framework or context to talk about rural normales since uh, 2000. Um, one, one, and maybe even more since 2006, but one would be the um, uh, um kind of educational reforms um, that really got going more under Calderon. That's why I say 2006, although 2000 is an important year for a reason I'll get to in a second. But so I, it, it's it, as if the logic of neoliberalism, which, you know, is from the 80s, was already anathema to, or the normales rurales were anathema to the logic of neoliberalism, right? Because they are a form of social public goods. Um, and, um but since the 2000s, there have been educational reforms that affecting teachers, for example, you know, teachers tenure, um, uh, um, eliminating one thing that was always been cherished by normalistas of their schools is that they were guaranteed a job after graduation in the countryside, right? They were trained to teach the countryside and then given a job that was eliminated um, more recently in 2012. And if, if those of us who pay attention to kind of uh, Mexican current events might remember under the Peña Nieto um, administrations, um, and I mean, even before that under Calderon, uh, teachers were one of the most kind of vocal and vociferous, uh, um, protesters, uh, to the economic, uh, reforms under the PAN and under the um, the, the the PRI. In fact, um, their opposition to many of the aspects that would have you know ended many of their labor rights and privatized many forms of education and even you know proposals more recently to eliminate normales themselves um, so that teachers can be trained anywhere, not at specific schools. Um, teachers have been really uh, active participants, and within these movements, graduates of normales rurales, or even students have participated. So that's one uh, context uh, to understand uh, um, uh, the normales recently. Um, the other is, uh, of course, Ayotzinapa in 2014, which I already mentioned, so I won't get into that more. But just to say, um, and this can even be seen even since the election of Andres Manuel López Obrador, is that Normalistas, uh, the rural normales still keep appearing in the news as sites of conflict. So most recently, you have just last uh, Friday, uh, rural normalistas from Ayotzinapa trying to take over the toll booths in, in Guerrero to demand some kind of, you know, response. They're still searching for their compañeros. They're missing 43 students, right? And the National Guard and state police blocking them and the confrontation that involves students, you know, throwing rocks and stones, you know, so you have that. And just before that, last year, you had students in Chiapas, the rural normal in Chiapas, uh, demand, uh, wanting to take their exam, protesting that they had to take their exam 
virtually on computers when most of them are from schools where they've never worked with their computers because sometimes it's not even electricity. So they didn't want to take these exams online and they were seriously repressed by the state government and many were jailed, eventually released. Um, so you still continue to have uh, that. And much of the reason uh, you have that is because um, uh, um, while rural normales are still under federal jurisdiction, they still receive funding from the federal government, it is up to state governments to administer these funds. So often when students protest, they're protesting against the state governments, often incidentally because those state governments are cutting the number of spots at these schools and the students are fighting to preserve the same number. So you still continue to see that even with uh, governors ostensibly from the same party as uh, Morena or as, as AMLO. The, the shift you do see is in the language of López Obrador in some ways. He, he at one point stated, I am not the Azordaz, I'm not going to repress, I'm not going to you know, close these, these schools, I, I empathize with, with you and your needs. So at least you have a rhetoric uh, from someone who has proclaimed to be, uh, you know, against neoliberalism, although, you know, <laughs> with his actions, we, we can uh, debate that, right? Um, but at the same time, this, and has also expressed um, a, a commitment to uh, find out and to go to the root of justice for the missing 43, right, in, in Ayotzinapa. And yet you still have some of the same dynamics at play where students are still forced to uh, protest and often get into armed skirmishes, and then they are dismissed by mainstream as, you know, revoltosos, as troublemakers, as, as violent. And why do they constantly have to use violence? Um, so in some ways you have a continuation of, of the dynamic we have seen historically, and it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out, right? We are not just in a shift with, with AMLO, who, you know, after a long time of neoliberal governments, you have someone with a left-leaning discourse and some of the actions uh, um, to, you know, kind of be consistent with that, although, you know, again, that's problematic. But finally, this is a hundredth year anniversary of the founding of the first uh, rural normal in Michoacan. And so it's going to be very interesting to see if the legacy, you know, in this hundredth anniversary under a government that calls itself leftist, if this can actually solidify uh, you know, the compromiso to rural normales, these institutions of, you know, what Armo would might call the third transformation, if his is indeed the fourth transformation, or if you will see their further and continued um, weakening, which would be particularly tragic if it were to occur under uh, a leftist government. Tanelis Padilla's new book is Unintended Lessons of Revolution, Student Teachers and Political Radicalism in 20th Century Mexico. Tanalisa, I appreciate your time. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. It was such a pleasure to, to talk about that, this, this book with you in such detail. Thank you. Take care. Bye.